we are live hello hello and welcome everyone to another episode of strong tea i'm vicky and i'm katie and if you haven't listened to us before why not we've got an extensive back catalogue now you can find us on podbean spotify amazon apple galaxy i think galaxy samsung yeah samsung you can find us anywhere we are everywhere we are everywhere was it Chorley FN coming, coming in, in your ears? ears. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so what is Strong Tea all about? Strong Tea is myself and Katie, and we invite inspirational guests to come on and talk about topics that we feel we should be learning more about, things that we should be talking more about, things that some may consider taboo, but we want to break away from that label and kind of spear through and have people learning more and talking about things without fear and asking the questions they've always wanted to ask about those topics. So it wouldn't be right because it's called Strong Tea. It wouldn't be right to actually have a brew whilst we're doing the episode. So in time or fashion, Finn, our lovely guest for today, what are you drinking? Hello. Well, today I'm actually drinking a coffee, which is rare for me, but I needed a bit of a coffee today, sinking into the new year still. So I'm actually drinking Beanie's coffee I love Beanie's coffee and because I drink coffee so rarely I drink the sachets so I can try lots of different flavours and my partner got me a massive tin of all the sachets this year Um, and today I've got what have I got today I've got nutty hazelnut coffee today it's so good it smells amazing I wish there was smell-a-vision smell-a-pod-a-vision smell-a-pod-a-vision smell-a-pod quick trademark it trademark it trademark it it's lovely so nice Scratch and sniff. Scratch and sniff, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was about to say that smells so good, but it sounds so good, but I wish I could smell it. It's really nice. Nutty coffee. Mm. Mm. Oh, lovely. Katie, what about yourself? Well, I am excited today. Here she goes. Here she goes. Because we are um, recording this in early January. January sales. I invested in a tea infuser and bought myself a load of brand new loose leaf teas. So today I am dipping in to Bird and Blend Candy Floss Tea. It's got tiny little stars in. Very exciting. And it says, join us at the fair with this sweet and scrumptious Candy Floss White Tea, which is Chinese white tea, apple pieces, hibiscus, elderberries and sprinkles. (laughs) That sounds amazing. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it smells really good. I have yet to try it yet. But oh, give us a live update when you when you take a swig. I will. It would be a loud slurp because of my tooth removal yesterday. So I'm just trying oh. to wait for it to be sort of tepid yeah. before I try and drink it. <laughs> what have you got? I'm in the same um, pod. See what I did there? There's <laughs> Finn. I'm on coffee today. So um, I, I'll take your beanies and I've got a co- hang on caramel cookie Nespresso. And because I've got a sweet tooth, I've put a little bit of praline syrup in it. Oh, very nice. Have you got like a full range of syrups? I've got amaretto, not alcoholic, and praline. Oh. Yeah, I'm a syrup fiend. I wish I hadn't discovered coffee and syrup, but yeah, damage is done now. So this is why I like beanies, because it hasn't got the sugar in it, you see. You've got all these lovely tastes, but without Mm. the sugar. So you can get all those lovely different things. See, See, that's the downside. I'm going to have to write this down because I need to try these. Mm. I'm going to have to try beanies because an espresso one, it smells sweet. So I've got a uh, like a raspberry one. 
Yep. Or, no, black cherry rather. It's black cherry. And it smells like it should be sweet. And then you slip it and it's really bitter. Hence mm. why an amaretto kind of syrup in there makes mm. it all nice. So I might have to try beanies. Mm. Yeah. I wonder I which is which is better, putting syrup in it or sugar, or which is less sugary. I'd imagine probably a sugar because it's yeah. Probably... I would imagine I would sugar. Think so yeah. Yeah. Thanks also... for making me feel better there, Katie. <laughs> do you, do you, well, also, do you free pour or do you measure it out? I bet oh, you free pour, me. don't you? Yeah. Pour milk. <laughs> yeah. No, it's definitely better to have a spoonful of sugar. Um, right. Before we spend our entire episode talking about coffee on strong tea, um, I'm without further ado, I'm going to introduce our wonderful guest, and this is our first episode that we're going to release with this wonderful guest but he is coming on and doing plenty of others with us and we're so excited because we've already recorded one and it was such a wonderful episode that I'm like I want to listen to that again um, because it was so good um so without further ado I'm going to introduce you to the wonderful Finley Games now Finley is a wonderful human Finley also known as Finn um has a huge following online thanks to his wonderfully honest accounts of his life journey um, Finn is a recovering alcoholic and addict and in sobriety since 2010. Uh, Finn is also transgender, which means he was assigned female at birth, but is in fact male. Uh, in recent years, Finn shared his journey to many and has now become a published author. I now have his uh, book on my bookshelf um, hey. with his book, Top to Bottom, which recounts the physical side of transitioning. And it's a wonderful, wonderful account. So if you want a really honest read, Go get it. Um, Finn has also recently been diagnosed with ME and is now sharing his experiences online to help and support others. And we're so lucky that you've come back to speak to us again, Finn, Mm. today. So thank you you for coming back Um, and not being scared away the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But today you're going to be talking to us about life with addiction. So without Mm. further ado, can you tell us your story, please? Bless you. It's lovely to be back. I've got so many stories to tell. and It's always like where one starts and the other ends and blah, 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 isn't it? Um, so, yeah, my alcohol story, I guess, really, this is where everything really began, to be honest. So for me, my drinking really was a way of numbing myself to, well, really, it was my off switch. That's why I drank. I drank as a way to escape all the difficult feelings I had. So from a very, very young age, I was an incredibly anxious child. I mean, I always joke, really, but I don't think this is the truth, that I actually came out of my mum anxious. I think I was just born anxious anyway. I think I was somebody that just felt very, very deeply anyway. And then there was just circumstances in my life that just made that worse. I was born into a family that was just kind of your typical dysfunctional family. Lots of family like problems and breakups and early death of my dad which definitely contributed to this kind of high anxiety but there was also something going on with me that I could never really get to the bottom of from a very very young age I just had this kind of knot of deep dread and anxiety that was going on and my head was always just so noisy and just full of that this self-talk all the time and this constant chatter And I just had this feeling that it was almost like I'd been dropped off on this planet and I didn't belong. I would watch everybody else just kind of getting along with other people, seeming to know how to act. And like it was like I hadn't got the manual, basically. Everyone else knew. And I 
just didn't know how to to get on in the world and it was just there was just no space to breathe that's how it felt and so when I first discovered alcohol or more to the point what it could do that became my answer and that first happened at the age of 13 at a 13 year old's birthday party and I remember this so very clearly me and my best friends were walking down to the off license at that point we'd already experimented with cigarettes and we knew that we could con someone in the off license to get us some alcohol and we'd plan to get some spirits of some kind and on the way there another friend from school going to the same party said don't be silly save your money get cider and I panicked thinking you can't get drunk on cider and looking back now I know that this is the start of alcoholic drinking that right from the start my drinking was alcoholic I told myself all the way through until I was in recovery that it was just typical adolescent drinking. And it wasn't because right from that very first experience, I wanted to get out of my head drunk. So we went to the off license. We did get cider. But because I was so concerned that it wouldn't work as well as spirits, we both got a litre of Meridian cider each. Other ciders are available. And <laughs> I downed this litre of Meridian cider as quickly as I could, thinking that, you know, if it's going to work, if I drink it really quick and all of it, then it will work. It did work. But this isn't normal experimentation, is it? This is drinking to blackout right from the very first time. So... I don't remember much of that night, but what I do remember really clearly is this feeling of every single muscle in my body relaxing and this knot that was in my stomach and in every part of me just undoing and my whole insides just breathing and my head for the first time just being silence and this kind of feeling of numbness just coming over the whole of me and not being able to feel anything and it was utter heaven just to just black out everything and I remember just feeling superhuman and being able to talk to everybody I mean I was probably a complete tit that night but I thought I was amazing and I loved that just being able to do what I want not care not feel it was wonderful I got such a telling off by my parents but I didn't care all I wanted to do was repeat that feeling as often as I could mm. and you know I was in school so you, you can't can you but as often as I could I would so down the park on the weekends on a Friday night Saturday night litre of cider drunk to blackout back home and then I started to add in different things. I discovered cannabis and I discovered that that didn't numb me to the same extent, but I could get away with using it during the week at school, at home and not be found out because, you know, you, you can be seen to be drunk and you can smell it, but I could hide cannabis. And that's how I then started to live my life. Everyone else left school and then went off to college to build a life. And I didn't. But that's when I started to then just tell myself these lies that it wasn't that alcohol was a problem. It was that other people were just boring. <laughs> you know, I'd start to say things like, you know, these people are just tied down by the man. You know, I'm this free spirit. I don't want to be like other people. I just want to go and live my life and have fun. 
So that's the lie I told myself. And I would make it so that alcohol, drugs, party life could be the centre and everything else came second. I always worked. So that was my one reason I could say, look, I'm working. What do you want about? But the work I did revolved around drink. So I would work for my money, but I would do agency work so that I could have Monday off so that I could recover. I could have Friday off because that was a valuable drinking day. And if I ever did cause trouble at work, they couldn't sack me because I would just take myself away from that job because I was an agency worker. And so I could always hide the problems that could surface. Drink allowed me to have this mask of looking like I was this party animal, that I was just fine and happy. But behind the scenes, I was completely falling apart and just using drink and drugs whenever I could just to to hide what was going on. Eventually, I started to run out of agency jobs where I was living. And so I started to move around. And now in Alcoholics Anonymous, where I did eventually start my recovery, they call this doing a geographical. No, I called this finding myself. And I would like go off and live in various like holiday camps and hotels. And I realise now why this was. It was because I couldn't pay bills. I would get drunk and then I'd come to and there'd be like bills on the mat to pay, you know, landlords chasing me for money. Live in work. If you have a roof over your head, they pay all your bills. They usually make your dinner as well. It's like having a full-time mum. All I had to worry about was going to work. And then in the evenings, I was free to get as drunk as I wanted to. Everyone else in those situations are there for party life as well. And even though I was older than them, they thought that was cool. As far as they were concerned, I was this cool older person that wanted to party like they did. And again, they just didn't see that behind the scenes, I was falling apart. And I bumbled through like that for a long time. And it wasn't that I didn't know I had a problem. But as soon as I started to realise those thoughts, I just drink on it and keep drinking on it. And just getting through life like that. But each time it was just getting worse and worse. So these geographicals or finding myself as I was still calling them were just getting more extreme. And I did keep trying to like drink less or change my drink to try and make things better. And I tried extreme things like I started to go and work in Scotland in a hotel in the middle of nowhere, thinking if I can't get the drink, then I'll be okay. Well, I arrived in Scotland and within an hour I asked the manager if I could get a bottle of wine out of the cellar and I didn't care how much it costs so that's what I did there I went even further afield and I got a volunteer job in the mountains in the middle of France and within an hour of touching down I was drinking wine out of a box with her and smoking a spliff within a week we were taking mushrooms in a field I would always just find people and I would gravitate towards places where I would just end up in those kind of situations. I did something incredibly extreme as I headed towards my 30s, becoming more and more aware that this was an issue and finding it harder and harder to kind of hide the fact from myself that it was an issue. I decided that what I needed was to get a career. You know, I was always, rather than trying to address the drink, I was either changing my situation, changing my partners, all of these kind of things, never addressing the drink or the drugs. This time I thought, if I got a career, this is what I need, a career. Bearing in mind, I couldn't even look after myself at this point. 
I decided I wanted to train to be a social worker. Now I'm laughing because, you know, this is what it's like being an addict. You just do not think sensibly. I understand now I'm a deeply caring, loving individual. And of course I'd want to be a social worker, but add drink to me and I'm a complete nightmare. So how on earth I thought this was viable, I don't know. But anyway, I came back to England and I scraped by an access course, drunk all the way through, but I did. I then managed to get myself an interview for a degree. I got myself so drunk the night before that I was still actually drunk in the interview. They mistook my banging on the desk as passion. And I somehow got into the access uh, to the degree course. And unfortunately, there was a freshers week, which ended at the end of the week for most people. For me, it carried on for the rest of the year. And this is where my behaviour really stood out compared to everyone else's. Beforehand, my behaviour hadn't really stood out because I was with people that parted like I did. Now I was with people who wanted a career, so they were getting on with their work. I was still partying. And it became so obvious that I had an issue. So my tutor said, look, I think you really need to leave and get yourself some help. And that's what I did. I left, but rather than get help, I just sunk. I was living in a shared house and I was at a point where I was so anxious at this point that I couldn't even handle seeing my housemates and they wouldn't let me smoke in the house. So I did the only thing an addict thinks logical and I moved into the garage so that I would be left alone to smoke and drink as I could. And that's what I did. I would sit in there drinking and smoking until about three o'clock in the morning and then come in because the drink wasn't numbing me as it had been. I started to self-harm as well. And I would in blackout start running around the streets. I was self-harming. They were bringing me home. The police were bringing me home. It was absolute chaos. And I was still in such denial. And one of my denials that still makes me laugh was I would say, I'm not an alcoholic. I don't drink till midday but I didn't get up until 11 a.m. And then I would pace the house until midday and then crack open my first beer. It was still my first drink of the day, <laughs> you know, but my logic would say, because I'm not drinking till midday, I'm not an alcoholic. At this point, the mental health team got involved and I was um, suggested to go into this therapeutic community for um, five days a week for people with complex needs, borderline personality disorders, what I was just possibly had they they suggested and it was a great program it really helped I did 26 months but unfortunately they only taught controlled drinking and so once I finished in the April 2010 without them keeping an eye on me I had an, a leaving party in the April and I came to from it in the July and realized I hadn't had a day off drink I was in debt with my landlady and my life had just gone out of control again I had this realization as I was crossing a road to a pub and a lorry was coming in the other direction. And I had this sinking feeling that I just wrecked everything all over again. And I thought I'm either going to step in front of this lorry or I'm going to sort something out. And I didn't, I just walked to a phone box and I rung my therapist. And I think this moment of desperation just made me just say to my therapist, completely honest, honestly, for the first time, how much I was drinking mm. and we talk in AA about like rock bottoms mm. and like it's not always your lowest but it's the right one 
And that was my right one. I'd got to the point of just being so sick and tired of being sick and tired that it was the right time for me. And she suggested AA and I'm so glad she did because I still went, I'm not an alcoholic, don't be daft. Um, but it was enough for me to just think, oh, I'm just going to try it. It's the only thing I haven't tried. And I went to a meeting and in that one meeting, I related more than I had done in 26 months of therapy, just to the way they were drinking, the reasons how they they use drink, and also to the way people being so non-judgmental, the honesty in the rooms. But more than anything, it was the way people were getting sober. They were saying, we're not not drinking. We're just saying we're not drinking today. And I could do that. I could not drink today, one day at a time, not forever, no way, but not today. And that's what I started to do just for 24 hours, not drink. And often just not for an hour, get to a meeting, don't drink for an hour, get to another drink, a meeting, don't drink for an hour and just do that. And gradually like the days and then the weeks started to add up and I couldn't believe it because I couldn't go five minutes and I got a, an amazing sponsor because all of a sudden all these feelings that I'd sat on since the age of 13 <laughs> just started to kind of appear and, this amazing sponsor helped me to kind of unpick what was going on. And for me, you know, as you kind of mentioned at the beginning, what it turned out to be was that I'm transgender, that all of this difficult feelings that I couldn't face, that I couldn't unpick, was that I, I was experiencing gender dysphoria. And because I was sober, I was at last able to face that. And all I'd needed was the help and support of somebody to do that. Uh, there's no way I could have managed that whilst drinking. You know, I needed that sobriety to do that. And it's incredible, you know, not not everybody goes into recovery and discovers their transgender. This is just me. You know, I always like to say that to people. <laughs> you know, I think people go in recovery and sometimes people discover there is a reason behind it. Sometimes there isn't, you know, but for me, this is what was driving it. And it's the last thing I imagined I'd discover in recovery. But also the last thing I'd imagined I'd discover in recovery was a whole new way of living. I mean, because I didn't just get sober. It's completely turned my life around. The way I manage my life now is so different. I mean, the idea of one day at a time is something I apply to everything. But what's really surprised me is that, you know, I had this idea that life would be boring without drink. How would I manage like difficult times how would I celebrate was I going to be this boring person that just sat at home and knitted or something like that you know but life now is like just so much richer than ever the whole idea that I wanted to numb myself to life now where life is just like this completely amazing kaleidoscope of feelings that I had no idea existed all that I could manage and AA has given me the ability to do that and the ability to find myself and the courage to be who I am and it is that that's really given me the ability now to be me because it's sobriety that's then opened the door for me to go off and come out and be trans. And actually now, even in my condition of ME to actually manage this in a healthy way, it's those tools that I apply to all of my life. And I'm so grateful to recovery, not just for getting me sober, but for all of it. I really am. Such, such an incredible story. I, you know, and I think, I know you've shared it a lot and you talk a lot about it on your social channels and on YouTube and things, but it takes a lot for someone to be so open and so honest and to talk about those lows because they're like you say, how when you were going through your journey, there were so many points where you were like, mm, 
this is this is not right but you carried on anyway and you were in denial um what for, for someone that hasn't experienced it how would you describe addiction how would you talk about the urges and the mindset because we've had um bob on before and he talked about his journey and he sort of said you do anything to get that next drink yeah how do you um sort of how how would you put that into words what that feeling is like it's almost like having another person inside you because you have this logic that says no this isn't helping it's not helpful but then you've got this other person that says yeah but yeah but yeah but yeah but and it's like this yeah but yeah but wears you down and you just cannot say no to it it's just this overwhelming feeling that you cannot say no to which is why a recovery program, a support group is so needed because you cannot manage recovery on your own. You do need that extra person because to manage this beast that says to you, yeah, but without it, you can't. And with it, you can. You need someone else to just go, hang on, he's lying. (laughs) He's lying. He's not telling you the truth. That's what you need because it is like that. And the trouble is as well, when it wears you down, this this beast that's telling you this stuff, when it wears you down and you have one, you then become weaker. Once you've had that one, it sets it off. So it's like this constant thing on your shoulder and it gets so tiring and it starts to wear you down. And the more tired you get, the easier it is to give into it. It's utterly exhausting being an addict and mm. because you know it takes so much space as well from addiction to become stronger from it. So especially in those early days when you do know that the relief of having a drink, having a head holiday, having the off switch is going to be so much better than dealing with that, that feeling. Of course it makes sense to drink because dealing with sobriety is so tough. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it is um, really, really hard. So yeah, I'd say say it's a person for me. It's definitely like a, an annoying person that just will not quit i think yeah a bit like a dog barking in the background yeah <laughs> yes yes absolutely apologies yeah. no, um, that's fine. we had um rob on an episode before talking about his sober journey so what came after and he was talking about his experiences about being um very secretive being a liar how having an alcohol addiction actually turned his personality into being yeah. a very nasty person who was very secretive does that resonate because from what you were saying all these experiences of you uh moving around finding yourself and finding these almost enablers who you could drink with and who you could smoke with it almost like you was you were so open and people were being such enablers you didn't need to hide it I don't know how how was that for you I I was such a liar it was horrible this is I'm such um a polar opposite to what I was now. I've taken honesty to an extreme level. <laughs> I think this is why I am how I am with my YouTube channel and my sharing. I've almost kind of gone completely opposite to what I used to be <clears throat> because, especially because I've gone through AA recovery and we talk about honesty. I did take that to absolute over extremes, but yeah, I used to lie all the time and manipulate all the time. And I would purposely like get people on my side to drink with me in order to just have a kind of like people with me and to to justify it because the more people were drinking with me it's like oh it's a party if I'm on my own it's alcoholism if it's people with me or it's, it, it's a party you know you know and if you know more people were doing it and 
especially with my my drug taking days as well you know i would have lots of people that i would be giving free drugs to and getting them on side taking drugs with me you know in order to it was almost like buying friends i used to do a lot of that and it's taken me a long long time to kind of make peace with that side of me and that's a huge part of recovery is coming to terms with that side of my personality that that's who i was back then to do that it's it's a really it's a really difficult thing to kind of separate the addiction from who i am because that's what addiction drives you to do because that is the beast thing that is the, the beast thing that that has to kind of convince you to do that to keep the addiction going and that's how addiction keeps going because it reminds you of that when you're sober you get reminded look at who, what you did and that shame makes you think oh i'll have a drink then because you're so ashamed of that thing you did that shame just makes you drink more because yeah. i'd wake up and i'd remember what i'd done oh god i, I can't stay sober i'm just going to go and have a drink to forget about it so it's not only the addiction driving the need for more drink but it's also these shameful things that we do that then drive for more drinkers for more drink as well so it's really tough but the honesty getting honest with yourself and then having other people be really accepting of those things you've done and understanding and for yourself to accept what you've done as well is how you stay sober you have have to just kind of get to a point of accepting that's the illness you know talking about that um that second person if you like that you mentioned before you mentioned on a couple of um occasions in that original story where you were saying it sounded like you were trying to get clean like you said I'm going to move to Scotland because if I can't get to the drink it's it you know I, I won't have it and you know if I move to France in the mountains and if I get a career it sounded like you were consciously aware that there was an issue so you were trying to fight against it but when obviously when you got there and you said you got to the hotel and you asked if you could have wine out of the cellar do you think it just overpowered you or do you think you just weren't at the right stage to say I have a problem I'm genuinely going to sort it out do you think it was you were getting overpowered by that urge I think it's a bit of both I think it is overpowering I think the addiction overpowers but then you've got to also get a point where you've got enough strength to overpower that overpoweringness does that make any sense <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I mean I was I was very aware it was there and there was obviously enough in me to want to do it but I had not enough strength so I kept thinking if I put some distance between me and it mm. then I'll be able to do it but I realised that there was obviously some unconscious bit that was somehow putting me near people. I mean, how I ended up in France with a lady that was just as much into drugs as I was, I really don't know. I mean, but that's how it just ended up. But I would always end up that way. And, you know, I would always end up seeking that out. So I think that overpoweringness, there just wasn't enough in me yet to admit that I really needed to, because otherwise there would have been enough there. But there's also this idea, I mean, you, I've, the thing with me is I'm very AA taught. So there's, there's also this idea that willpower alone will never be enough mm. because it won't, because willpower really, when you've got the nonsensical kind of ideas of this 
addiction beast talking to you that never makes any logical sense anyway addiction doesn't willpower really won't do it so you need something much more than that you need a really strong program you need a really strong community in order to overcome addiction because addiction of its nature just never makes sense Mm -hmm. so trying to overcome it with willpower alone is never never going to do it you talked about having relationships and you know whilst we're talking about support at the time when you were either at your lowest or when you were full flow within the addiction, if and when someone did try and help you or to highlight of, you know, you might want to go easy there or, you know, what's going on, how did you react? I would usually leave them, (laughs) to be honest. Usually my partners drank like I did. Most of the time I would end up in very codependent, very unhealthy relationships where partners used as much as I did most of the time it would be very destructive similar relationships it was very very rare that I was with anybody that wasn't the same it was always like I'd kind of swap partners whenever it it wasn't working you know we'd always I'd always blame the partner and then just swap onto a different partner and think it would be different but then we'd end up being the same way it was because anybody that wasn't like me would highlight my issue Mm -hmm. so I would purposely move away from anybody that wasn't like me you know or if anybody did say I had a problem then I would always think well it's them (laughs) really not me Mm -hmm. you know it's just they're different than me they're just like at my worst I'd just say that they were boring or straight laced you know and that that's that's their problem not mine that would always be how my kind of addict head interpreted it so all of my partners back in those days were very much hard drink drug users that were party people like I was I feel so lonely yeah I mean looking back now I mean and this is why it's so strange to think back to my early recovery and think about how terrified I was of my life becoming boring and I look back now at how lonely that was, exactly that. The partners I had, the relationships I had, the times out we had, there were always chaos, mm. arguments, issues, problems. It was horrid, very lonely. There was never a, a decent connection in a relationship. It was never a healthy connection. But the addict part of me told me that you didn't want to lose that, which is utter bonkers because I look at what I have now with my partner and that's so healthy and beautiful and deep connection and the things we do we go out for healthy walks and we have lovely time together that's a healthy happy relationship Mm. not that but that's what addiction does it warps your thinking it's like Mm. it's like waking up from the matrix it really is like that addiction I remember sitting in many AA meetings and having this sense of like my world shifting and it is like that it's like waking up from the matrix where you see the world a certain way and then all of a sudden you get sober and you go, oh, my goodness, I can't believe I used to think that way. You know, and you suddenly rethink everything because addiction warps the way you think, the way you react, everything. It's it's such a powerful, powerful thing. You talked um, about one day at a time. And I know that's that's very much the strap line, isn't it, for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's yeah. it's what a lot of people talk about. And I think, like you said, it's such a powerful, almost like a mantra to have in any in any sort of life situation. But how do you find living now, being clean, being on the other side of it? Are you still very much 
operating on a one day at a time basis or is it easier to see it further now into the distance on, on a bigger picture or is it still like no I just need to get to the next day it's not I still I live everything one day at a time I'm very much one day at a time with everything and I think that's such a helpful way to live everything is manageable when it's taken one day at a time I mean if even if I think my gender transition was so much more manageable because I just thought about it one day at a time. This ME, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen one day to the next with my ME. And if I think about it, I panic. But if I think about it just for today, it's manageable. But what's different is it's not a desperate panic because in the very beginning, I desperately, like as many times I wanted to drink. And I was lucky. I was living in Oxford when I got sober. So there was often three or four meetings a day. And I would go to three or four meetings a day because I would sometimes be like, I just need a drink. I really need a drink. I really need a drink. So I would just go to a meeting, relax, go back home, start panicking, go to another meeting. So that one day at a time was like hanging on for grim death to get through. Whereas now there's not the panic behind the one day. It's more of a freedom feeling than a panic feeling if that makes sense yeah whereas now it's like to survive it was one day at a time whereas now it's more of a freedom feeling it's like anything is possible one day at a time it's that feeling so I still live by that but I mean if I look ahead now and I think I'm never going to drink for the rest of my life I do still feel like a little bit of a panic around that if I'm honest there is that feeling of like really forever wow but not in the same extent Mm -hmm. as I would have felt back then but yeah, I mean, I never add up my days until it gets to August and I go, wow, it's been it's 12 years now. Wow. And I know, and it, but it hits me every time because I don't count up the days until it gets to the, that big sobriety date. And I just go, that's incredible. But it is amazing that that's the only way I managed those early days because it was suddenly my sponsor said, so, you know, one day at a time, it's now been a year. And I was just like goodness me but I don't think I could have done it without one day at a time and it's magic because it's I just see the power of that in everything I do Mm. it just helps me to cope especially because I'm someone that's got a huge amount of anxiety as well because you know I'm easy I can easily like over catastrophize a lot of stuff and I start thinking oh but if I don't do that this will happen and then that will happen and all of a sudden I've imagined like the world collapsing and like fire and brimstone and all sorts. So if I just go today, this is happening just for today. It's so much easier, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it's, it's quite a magical thing. It's such it's a really powerful, but sim- oh. simple message, isn't it? Oh, there we are. Jinx, jinx. <laughs> jinx yeah. I, just wrote, I just wrote down what you said there. Everything is manageable one day at a time. And that, if that's not something to live by, I don't know what yeah. it is. And even just you saying it in such a sort of breezy way, I was just like, oh my God, why don't I think like that? I need to think yeah. like that. I'll have some of that, please. It's so true though, isn't it? It really yeah. is. Because otherwise you can just start thinking and looking at news and doing that. And then it's like, oh my God, I'm rocking yeah. in the corner. It's like, you know, the pl- the, the, the peat is blown up. Yeah, but it's manageable today. It's fine. Yeah. It, it might be flooded tomorrow and the wall might fall down on Thursday, but it's manageable today, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And if you bring it like that, then you, you can't over panic. Yeah. And it just makes it easier. So yeah. It's really obvious that the AA and the support structures that you've had around you for the last 12 years have made a, just an immeasurable difference to you, yeah. you know, psychologically, mentally, 
taking you back obviously there's more to struggling with addiction than just kind of the mental side and psychological side it's a huge amount of it but there's also the physical side how was your battle with the physical recovery from addiction I should have gone to my doctor and got some help rather than gone cold turkey but I didn't know that at the time unfortunately so I was a bit poorly for the first couple of weeks because I literally went from probably 24-ish cans a day and a few bottles of spirits a week to nothing um so I was having quite a lot of dizziness and sickness in the first couple of weeks um so that was problematic and then there was just lots of really strange stuff like I had a lot of abscesses in my teeth going on and lots of my skin broke out I think it was just basically the toxins coming out of my skin so that was not pleasant I think it took me a good couple of months before my health settled down I also didn't sleep I couldn't sleep at all because I've been so used to blacking out that my body had forgotten to go to sleep it's like oh I don't know I don't know how to sleep now how do we go to sleep just like lying down (laughs) so I had no idea how to sleep so I had to learn all of that stuff and that's the first thing my sponsor actually taught me to do was like develop a healthy waking routine a healthy sleeping routine a healthy bathing routine because I just wasn't doing any of that eating normal healthy food rather than like a packet of crisps in the pub you know because I was pretty much living on alcohol because I was still I've had eating disorders on and off uh, most of my life so I was pretty much just eating cereal and then lager and nuts and crisps in a pub and that was pretty much what I was living on so I had to learn how to eat healthily again I had to learn what to drink because I was really just drinking lager and the odd cup of coffee that was about it so I had to learn all of that simple stuff about taking care of myself that I'd never done before and I was really lucky with an amazing sponsor that did all of that and that kind of groundwork first about how do you how do you wash cook eats you know all of those kind of things that you would take for granted that I had to had to learn do you do you think obviously oh sorry we're going to carry on then no okay just me (laughs) um um, you talk about the physical side of of recovery and the the mental health impacts that you went you must have gone through as well like when you said you came out the other side, you almost had this sort of clarity and clear mind to actually work out who you were and that you were trans and actually everything started to fall into place. But as we talked about on your um, original podcast when we first spoke to you, transitioning is obviously not an easy process and it it's that takes its toll as well mentally. Did you find it difficult, even though it given you such clear clarity of mind to tell you who you were going through such a difficult transition did you find it difficult to maintain your sobriety during that time but do you find it harder because because you were trying to do something that was so big yeah it was a real difficult decision to know what to do for the best one of the things that they say in recovery is to not make big decisions or big changes in the first year um and I'd been I started my recovery in the August and it was about a year in that I started to have all these kind of realizations. And for me, it was like, 
once I realised I was trans, I was terrified that if I told people in AA that I'd lose all of this support, that people would like kick me out. I was terrified of that for a start. But also if I did come out, you know, was it going to be that it would like push me over the edge and go back drinking? Would I be able to manage it all? And I really didn't know what to do for the best. But in the end, I decided that if I didn't do it, I was probably more likely to drink that way. So I decided to take a huge risk. I mean, I was lucky that I was really supported and accepted in AA. But the trouble came when in the beginning, it was great because everyone was really supportive, really, really encouraging of my transition, really worked hard to use the right pronouns and the right name. I just had so much support. I was really lucky. But then the, the period of problem for me happened when I hit the waiting lists, which is so huge when it comes to gender transition. So I was out using the right pronouns. I'd done all the things I could do, like change my name. And there was this dead period of waiting where my mental health went through the floor. And then I really wanted to drink. And thank goodness I was in AA. And thank goodness they were accepting. So I was able to actually talk about how my transition was impacting on my drink so I was able to use those rooms and those meetings to talk openly about it and they were accepting of it I mean there are LGBT specific meetings so you can do this I didn't need that because my local groups are accepting enough for me to do that in the rooms. so I was lucky but yes it did definitely increase my cravings and my want to go back and have a head holiday but what kept me sober was knowing that if I did that, I could likely just lose everything, you know? I mean, I was told in the very early days of recovery that if you want to stay sober, you've got to build a life you don't want to lose. And I'd worked really, really hard to start doing that. I'd moved away from friends that weren't helpful. I'd started to build really good friendships. I'd gone back to university. I'd enrolled with the Open Uni and I'd started to do that. So all of these really positive things, I was aware that I might lose. And that's the best thing you can do, because if you start to build this stuff up, and there's lots of evidence of this, because the less an addict has, the more they're going to use. Whereas if you build this really amazing life, the more connection you have, the more purpose you have in the life, in your life, the more you're likely to stay sober. And that's what just kept me going. And that's, you know, that's how I managed to make it through. Was that process uh quite surprising for you that cleansing process almost detoxifying of your surroundings and your life was was that surprising with what very, you got rid of yeah very to find real people was quite refreshing because I've always been a very deep person and to actually start having healthy relationships with people that wanted to talk about real things rather than just beer, drugs. You know, it was actually like, actually, these people are really good. So, you know, to have like genuine conversations and deep conversations and healthy stuff. And yeah, it was lovely. It was really, really, really nice to feel like an adult, but to feel like an adult and actually enjoy being an adult, mm. to get excited about paying bills. You know, I was actually starting to get, I remember buying my first Hoover and getting really excited about buying my first Hoover and doing all the adult stuff, you know, that it might sound ridiculous, but for me to start doing that at the age of what was it, 36 when I entered recovery, was just quite incredible just to start living that kind of life that had just taken me ages to live. You know, not only was I starting to be who I really was, but I was also starting to be an adult and finally grow up and be with people who were my age. And yeah, it was, it was so refreshing. 
it's really fascinating because you you started at such a young age at 13 and the, the your story up to to the point of that decision that transition point is kind of it's like you've lived two lives yeah but does it feel like that because yeah absolutely does it's a bizarre feeling and do you know what whenever I go for a mental health review because obviously I'm still my mental health is so much better and it's better because I'm involved with it I take charge of my mental health and I look after myself mm. but obviously there's still lots of stuff to undo but whenever I go for a mental health review people always say this to me they say it's just like this this pile here is like a different person and I completely agree I was very much like it's everyone else's fault you need to help me to do this and whereas this person now is like you know, this happened to me and it's awful, but I can take charge. I can do this. I can respond to this. I can take this action. You know, it, it's just like two different people. And it's bizarre. It's like I walked in those doors of AA and came out <laughs> and just completely different. It Honestly, it's it wasn't just about getting sober for me. It's just changed everything. My whole perspective was just like these. It's just like, like I say, like a veil went up. And it's like I saw life differently and I now respond and react to life in such a different way that's just allowed me to completely change my life in every way possible. You you talk there and you use the very literal term of walking through the doors to AA. Mm. And I've heard we talked with Bob and his um, episode and he went to rehab and he talked about right he was he was on the right track he was going to go to rehab but he was actually planning about how he could get booze on the way to rehab right and how he was in that still in that mindset but he knew he was going to rehab so it was fine cuz he was going to sort himself out but he still wanted that one last drink i guess you're in you're in such an incredible position because of your lived experience and what you've been through and where you are now to be able to talk about this but what would you say to someone that was experiencing addiction, um, alcoholism, whatever it might be, and they feel like they need to get help, but that walking through the door or going to rehab feels so big and so daunting and so scary because you think you're not in the one day of mind, uh, mindset at that point. You're just thinking, oh, my God, I'm never going to be able to drink again. How would you talk to them? What advice would you give? Because I imagine that stops a lot of people because it's so daunting. You don't have to stop drinking. You just walk through the door and give it a go. That's basically what you have to do. And there are so many buddy systems now. You can ring up, especially with AA, you can ring up and you can ha actually have someone meet you or even come to your house and take you to a meeting. You can actually have somebody walk in the room with you, which I know a lot of people find helpful. I mean, I was lucky because I was used to kind of like a shared space thing. It was a little bit easier for me, but I know it's so hard. So, yeah, you can actually ring up the AA helpline. Somebody will come and pick you up and actually physically take you there to make it easier. But I think going with an open mind and not actually thinking, like, if I go in this room, I've got to stop because you haven't. You haven't even got to speak. You can just simply go in, sit at the back of the room. People will, might come up and say hello, but there is never any pressure to speak. There will, will be an option where people say if anyone's new and they want to introduce themselves, feel free to do so. And if you don't, you can sit quiet. You can even have a drink beforehand if it makes it easier to get in the room. There is never any pressure not to. I know plenty of people that have done that. You just can't speak on your first meeting if you've done that. But if it gets you just to be comfortable to sit in a the room, there's never any judgment. But, you know, I mean, I did not go into that room with an intention to stop drinking. I didn't. I went into that room because it was something I hadn't tried. 
but it was only after going into that room and seeing what I saw that I thought I'm going to give this a go. But in all honesty, I had no intention of stopping when I walked in that room. I just went because my therapist said, look, give it a go and then we'll talk. But no, there was nothing in me that was going to give up when I went in. I wanted a way of solving the problems but I was hoping that I could get a solution which didn't involve stopping drinking. I was still hoping that there was some magic solution to like fix all the problems and still allow me to enjoy like my blackouts, you know? So don't be afraid. There is lots of different buddy systems available and you don't have to stop drink. Just get in a room with an open mind, get in a meeting, get into a support group with an open mind and see what happens. There's obviously a lot of experience that you've got of people trying to kind of help you so if someone has a friend or a family member or an acquaintance whatever who has an addiction has a drinking problem what would your advice be to them get help for yourself right. because it's impossible really to help an addict unless you get help first because i think you cannot there's so much truth in the fact that the only person that can help an addict is themselves the more we try and intervene the more you kind of back off so aa especially has a really really good family and support network called Alanon, and it works in a very similar way to aa anybody can go who has a friend or a partner loved one who has trouble with alcoholism i've been to a few meetings myself because i've got friends who are alcoholics and so i've been to a few meetings myself they run similar to aa but they help you to just deal with the feelings around what it's like when somebody you love is drinking and they can help you to find solutions and ways to manage it but that's always what i say first because when there's so much feeling involved you can end up being quite confrontational and that that isn't helpful so get help for yourself first then tackle how you're going to deal with your loved one because it's so difficult i was watching a podcast this morning actually because somebody suggested uh, somebody was asking me for some resources and they were talking about how people who are alcoholics and addicts need community and often what we end up doing is alienating people by going to them and going you know your drinking is upsetting me i'm worried about you and so then what the alcoholic does is they withdraw because we we don't we know we're scared about being stopped and the last thing you want to do is isolate an addict an addict and alcoholic needs more community to stay sober so get yourself help first get the other experience of people in the room who've dealt with it then you'll have more tools to know what to do best we'll of course put all these links up on the episode um description as well because yeah that, that's a really useful resource there yeah. thank you so okay. much i'll give you the link to this ted talk mm. that I watched this morning as yeah. well because it's so so good so so good I, I i just i found like talking to you and understanding about your journey has been incredibly eye-opening because i think a lot of people sort of sit on the outside of seeing other people struggle and they're not truly aware of what that struggle entails so thank you for being so honest um as you're aware um at the end of our um episodes as you did last time we like to offer all i guess the final sip and it sounds like cherry vicky's dog wants the final sip today but <laughs> we're not gonna let that happen <laughs> you ever seen the film old yeller yeah you know what happens to the dog at the end <laughs> oh no <laughs> vicky how dare you 
Dougie would not like that. <laughs> oh dear. Uh, but Finn, what what would your final sip be for for anyone listening to this that you know just listening or may or may not be experiencing addiction or or issues themselves? My final sip, I think, would be to say that there is a way out. I can remember feeling there's just there's never going to be any end to it. That I was never going to find my way out. And I can also remember, well, I've also got people who I've seen be in the thick of addiction and heard people say about them that they'll always be like that. It's not true. There is a way out of addiction and recovery is absolutely possible. It just takes a lot of patience and time and love and understanding that this is an illness addiction is an illness we don't choose it it happens by accident it's just something that people can't help it's an illness like something else so addiction and recovery is absolutely possible so whether it's yourself or a loved one just hold that in mind that it is possible and there is so many different there's incredibly huge amount of recovery networks of support services out there so even if I mean I I will always 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 recommend AA because it's how I got sober but I know a lot of people are often worried about the fellowship because they think it's a religious program it isn't it's spiritual but AA isn't the only fellowship there are so many different places out there so have a look around find one that works for you and give it a go because a better life is out there then we can't thank you enough yeah, for firstly you're just your honesty and you know I always say there's strength in vulnerability and you have laid yourself out there today and just inspired and I'm sure it's it's helping a lot of people out there with with your honesty and your truth so thank you, thank you. so much thank you. you pleasure lovely to chat to you both as always Oh, and we look forward to recording again because you're a firm yeah. member of the Strong Tea family now. <laughs> it seems so. <laughs> we're just gonna keep. We're just gonna keep tapping you up for. Uh... Yeah, great. You've got so many, so many stories. I'm like, just keep going. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant! And thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, and as I said before, we've got lots of Strong Tea episodes to go back on. But if you want to support myself and Katie and in the Strong Tea endeavor, then you can buy us a coffee or a tea. Or tea. Or anything else you fancy, really? Prosecco. I'm in the mood for Prosecco. So you can go on our Strong Coffee tab and actually download and buy us a coffee. However, in the meantime, we would like to thank you again. And it's goodbye from me. (laughs) It's goodbye from me. I just said, come on, Vicky, it's a new year. Get a new strap line. We're not the two Ronnies anymore. Thank you so much. (laughs) Fine, we can continue. It's fine. (laughs) Thanks, Thanks, everyone. Take care. Bye.